Genesis 1, the creation of the world, we talked about how the point of it all was ultimately to point us to the one who made it, the creator, uh, God himself. Now, um, chapter 2, as it were, in Genesis uh, is still the creation as Whereas Genesis 1 was kind of this macro zoomed out view, Genesis 2 wants to zoom in uh, and give us some details, specifically some details pertaining to um, the creation and the mandates given to uh, man made in God's image and what that is all about. So let's read that here, uh, Genesis chapter 2, starting verse 4. I guess let me pray before we read it. Father, uh, we pray that you would... Open your word to us, Father, that you would calm our hearts um, after a long week. Father, that you would give us hearts that yearn for truth, that you would give us ears to hear that truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read this here in Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to, call, to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And the man said... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. I feel like I'm not sinner. That feels better. All right. Sorry. That was messing me up. Um, This is God's word for us tonight. uh, St. Augustine, 
said this about God, uh, specifically about God as being a trinity of persons. He said, the trinity is the only view of God that gives an understanding of the ultimate that has relationship at the heart of it. The trinity is the only view of God that gives an understanding of the ultimate that has relationship at the heart of it. What we see in the trinity, when as mind-boggling it is to consider that God says, let us Make man in our image. What we see in the Trinity is that relationship is at the heart of reality. That God didn't create because He needed or wanted to experience something He didn't have. Because for eternity, He has known perfect community, perfect relationship, perfect love and harmony in and of Himself. And as unfathomable as that is, relationship, it tells us relationship is at the heart of reality, that the image of the one that we are made in is a we, um, not a me, right? So we will not, we cannot, if we are made in the image of God, be happy, be fulfilled in this life outside of relationship. I think what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is how God shows us that he created man for himself into relationship with himself, and then he also creates him. Uh, in relationship to others when he makes woman. So God makes man, he, when he actually, when we talk about being made into relationship, bearing the image of God, being made into relationship, uh, what we're actually talking about is that we were made covenantally. We were made into a covenant because of the creature creator relationship that we have with God because we bear his image. We are created into covenant. God makes us and brings us into covenant with himself, man bound to God and God bound to man just by our existence. And then at the end of chapter two, we see that when he creates the first human relationship, it's also a covenant. Man bound to woman and woman bound to man. That's the first human relationship. It's a covenant relationship, covenant marriage. So when we say that we're created for relationship, we're saying that we're created covenantally. That's a nice Bible Christianese word, and it's not even used here in chapter 2. But that's what I want to make the case for tonight. So I want to look at it in three ways. The covenant defined, the covenant applied, and the covenant illustrated. So the covenant defined. If we weren't talking about religious covenants, I I still think this fits. I think the simplest way to define a covenant is a relationship. Um, Something that's been popular, I don't know how long it's been popular. I feel like it's only been popular like the last 10, 15 years as far as neighborhoods I've known of or lived in, right? Some neighborhoods have HOAs, right? Um, Or covenants of your neighborhood. I know in my parents' neighborhood in Madison, they all have to have the exact same mailbox. So if your mailbox gets destroyed, you have to buy the exact same one that everybody else has, right? Um, but it's a relationship that binds everyone that, re- that lives in that neighborhood to a certain list of expectations of what they're going to do and how they're going to treat their neighborhood or whatever. Um, I think the most simple definition of a covenant is relationship. Um, and so let's flesh that out. And we see that in how... We, in all of our relationships in life, um, you see a phenomenon I think that we can agree with. That simply any and every relationship begs for a definition. A covenant is a relationship that is clearly defined. Right? And I think you can, if you think about your most fundamental relationships, every relationship begs for a definition. Whenever you meet anyone, a relationship's formed 
And certain expectations and definitions are being formed as you get to know that person, however quickly or long you know that person. Some of these relationships we know and definitions of them, we know pretty instinctually, right? Like a parent-child relationship. You just kind of, whoever raised you, whether it was your, your biological parent or not, you kind of, there's this instinctive definition with whoever raised you. There's this kind of learned, because I said so. Why will, what do I tell my kids? Why will you do what I just told you? Because I told you to. Like, I'm your parent and you're the kid and that's how this works. It never works like that and it's really frustrating. Um, But it's kind of instinctual. Maybe like a teacher-student relationship. Maybe that's a relationship we have to learn, but we know there's an authority structure there. You kind of know inherently that if your professor asks you if he or she can text you later... That's kind of weird, right? Um, there's, there's, there's some definitions and appropriate behaviors that go along with the teacher-student relationship. Sibling relationship, another one. That's a relationship you don't choose, right? But the definitions of that relationship are kind of defined. You know, I tell my boys a lot. You're not going to hit your sister. Why? Because she's your sister. That You're not going to hit her, right? Um, friend, friendship. You think about a relationship. Friend, we at least know, somewhat instinctually, that a friendship is only when it's mutual, right? Um, you can't just walk up to somebody and say, hey, we are friends now. That's not how it, some of us wish that's how it worked. Um, maybe some of us more extroverted types, but that's not how it works. So most of these become pretty instinctual, but I think there's another relationship that actually helps drive this, home, this point home a little bit uh, about relationship and covenant. And that's the grand enigma of dating, right? There's nothing more awkward more worried about whatever than dating. It's the grand enigma. Because guy-girl relationships are awkward as it is, but especially when there's any hint of romantic feelings, right? Does she like me? Does she not? Should I tuck my shirt in? Should I not? Whatever. All these weird questions. You know, maybe you, maybe you and this guy, or you and this girl, you've just been around each other a lot. Maybe you've even started texting. Maybe you've even told the person you kind of like them. And so maybe you've even gone on a few dates. But at some point... Uh, in, in that kind of guy-girl trajectory where it's going, there always comes a moment, right, where the angst and the tension builds, and finally one or both of you looks at each other and you say, okay, what is this? What is this thing going on between us, right? We used to call that the DTR. Any y'all still have this? Um, right, we had the DTR. So cool. Um, here's the grand enigma of dating that I would suggest to you. And I'm doing... A dating seminar at Winter Conference, so you should come. Um, here's the grand enigma of dating. Why it's so hard, why it's so frustrating, whatever. That no matter how well you have defined the relationship, no matter how well you have defined the appropriate behaviors of a relationship, no matter how well you've defined your feelings uh, or defined your desire for commitment or exclusivity, no matter how long you've even been dating, the problem with the dating relationship is that it can never fully answer the question, what is this between us? There's lots of reasons for that. Mainly being that at any moment, one of you could just say, I'm not feeling this anymore, bye. Right? And that's the fear we all live in and we all melt under. At any moment, it could end. And that insecurity perpetuates a dating relationship. And that's why they're hard. That's why they're frustrating and all this. But here's the beauty of Genesis chapter 2. When it comes to our relationship with God and the relationship that He created us for, What God is telling us in Genesis 2 is, I have not left you to wonder. 
I have not left you to wonder what is this that is supposed to be between us. He actually is very explicit about the terms of the relationship here in Genesis 2. He's very explicit about the, uh, beha- the behaviors appropriate to this relationship. Implicit in this story here is something that's going to be made explicit throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, the saying that's repeated that I will be their God and they will be my people. That this is a relationship that I have created by creating you in my image. I've created you into relationship with myself. And that's why, and not maybe that you don't necessarily care, but that's why like theology textbooks talk about God's covenant with Adam. Again, that word isn't used here, but that's what's going on. God's establishing relationship with mankind through Adam, where there's a fixed definition demanding certain appropriate behaviors and prohibiting others. And so basically, to sum it all up, God does not leave Adam to wonder. His expectations. God wants Adam to choose his favor, to choose God's favor in his life. God wants Adam to delight in him as he lives his life. God wants Adam to delight in him alone as the source of his life so that he can live a blessed life. That is what God is outlining for Adam and for all of Adam's posterity as well. God wants Adam to understand the relationship that he has with God. Alright, so covenant defined that God creates Adam and therefore us into relationship with himself. But look how God applies the second thing, God, how, how God applies this relationship. God not only makes the definition of the relationship clear for Adam, he wants to apply the implications of it to his life. God wants Adam, you look at all the things that happen here. God wants Adam to come into conscious acceptance and enjoyment of this covenant relationship. Adam, here are the things. Here is how you should live to enjoy relationship with me. God wants Adam to apply this relationship and its implications to his heart. He wants to believe them and affirm them and cling to them. And God wants Adam to experience this covenant that he's been created into in his life. We see this most tangibly... There in verse 9, not a ton of details given to us, but we see all of this most tangibly through the instructions that God ends up giving about the trees. Um, Not told much about the tree of life other than that's the tree of life. Uh, Later on, when they sin uh, and God bars them from the garden, one of his reasons is lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. So there's something about this tree that gives life. Um, And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's not an uncommon question at this point when you think about the story, whether you heard it as a kid, whether you, you've heard it anecdotally, whatever. It's not uncommon to think to yourself as you read this. Because if you know the Bible and you know Genesis 3, you kind of know where this is going, right? That they will end up eating of the tree they weren't supposed to. So the, the common question is to think, why even put the tree there? Like, if it's just going to completely ruin their lives and completely ruin existence after that, why even put that tree there? Uh, as far as we know, there's nothing biological, biological in the nature of the tree. So think about, think about this for yourself. One, why would he put it there? And then think about this. What is the sole reason? I would suggest to you there's only one reason. What is the sole reason that the tree brings death if Adam's to eat it? I would suggest to you the sole reason that it would bring death if he ate it. It was because God told him not to eat it. That's why it would bring death. So think about this. Covenant relationship established and now applied to his life. And what was Satan's main deception of Adam and Eve? 
Did God really say not to eat of that tree? Right? The sole reason that that eating of that tree would bring death, the sole reason I would suggest to you is because God said not to. And that's the point. Best illustration or analogy that I've, I've heard to help understand this is this. Just like we exercise and eat, some of us, not me, as much as I want. Um, well, I eat as much as I want. I don't exercise as much as I want. Uh, just like we exercise and eat, we try to exercise and eat right to grow physically, to grow well physically. By pointing out the two trees and giving explicit commands regarding both, God was providing Adam a means to grow spiritually. God was providing Adam a means to grow in his relationship with the one that made him. Which is to say, yeah, to to grow in his relationship with God, to look at that tree and to make a choice with his mind and his heart that, yes, I can believe God's words about this tree and I can obey his command regarding this tree and therefore love him. Or I can do what I want and go my own way. That's the choice before Adam. And that's the choice that God lays before Adam. One commentator put it like this. These trees here are the physical means of a spiritual translation. The fruit confronts man with God's will, particular and explicit. And he gives man a decisive yes or no to say with his whole being. And so this kind of helps us understand what, what it means by the knowledge of good and evil. That can't mean omniscience. Because Adam eats it and doesn't all of a sudden know everything. What they come to know when they end up breaking this command is simple as this. That good is what God says is good. And evil is what God says is not. And so the point was how is man going to decide in his life, in this world, what was right or wrong? Was he going to choose his own judgment Or was he going to choose God's? But here, again, we usually focus on the bad tree. Because we like bad things for some reason. But there's another tree there. Again, we're not told much about it. But there's this other tree that we're told about. This tree of life. Why is the tree of life there? Well, simply, I think it's, it's given to affirm the covenant. That this is the tree that gives life in relationship with me. It's to affirm the relationship. So when Adam ate of this tree... Uh, This tree of life, he's able to affirm his relationship with God. He's able to affirm that he will listen to God's words and not his own. He's able to accept God's interpretation of the world and not his own. And he's saying that he will actively experience God's affection and favor instead of looking for it somewhere else. So when eating of that tree, what Adam would have done would be confirm his faith in God. And by refusing to eat of the tree that God said not to eat, he'd also be affirming his faith in God. So you see, we get so hung up on the prohibition, but it's actually life-giving. The prohibition is life-giving. Don't eat of this one. Eat of all the others, including the tree of life. God could have created man. He could have been, he could have been the watchmaker God. Could have created man and just watched him go and watched it burn and been like, man, you really screwed that up. That's not what he does. God actively and intimately enters relationship and directly applies it to Adam's life. This is how your relationship with me should direct your life. I want our relationship, Adam, to be your life. That's what he's saying there. If you think about this, God gave Christians the same thing, didn't he? What are we doing each time we come to the Lord's table? 
but exactly what God was inviting Adam to do at the tree of life. I don't know if you ever thought about this. In John 6, Jesus says one of the most bizarre things. Um, Jesus has had a penchant for saying weird things to people. And you sometimes, I wonder at least, like how did those people hear that? In John chapter 6, it's after he's fed the 5,000. Uh, and it's like a day or two later and crowds are coming back to him. And he basically calls them out and says, you're only coming to me because I fed people bread the other day. And so, and he tells them about some spiritual bread. And so he says, well, um, well how are we supposed to get that? And then he says, you've you got to eat me. Jesus says this. And so they're like, okay, how are we supposed to do that? And Jesus says this, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now again, for us Christians or people who grew up around Christianity, we kind of know what that means. But can you imagine how the first people who heard him say that thought, like, what is he talking? The dude's crazy. Like, come on. How absurd must it have sounded? And when it gets down to it, how absurd it really is that yet for 2,000 years, It's exactly what Jesus' followers have done. The Book of Common Prayer puts it like this, that when we come to the Lord's table, we feed on Him in our hearts by faith. I love that. That we're nourished, we're comforted, we're strengthened as we again from the tree of life, take from the tree of life, Jesus Himself. We affirm our faith in the new covenant, in His blood. We delight in the love that He has for us and has given us in the new covenant. And we cling to Him and we cling to His work for us in the new covenant. This new relationship we have with God through Jesus. Again, take the dating metaphor. This is why dating can never get away from that question What is the deal between us? It always has to be asked because we're always wondering, so what is this? Like, are we still on the same page? Am I liking you more than you're liking me? Do I need to tone it back? Is it, what is, mm, you know, all you, y'all know what I'm talking about. And if your friends do it, you're like, shut up. Um, In dating, there's this undying need to know what the deal is because there's this undying insecurity and worry that it could end at any moment. And it really doesn't even have to be dating. It can be friendships for that matter, right? That all of our relationships are affected by this undying need to know what is the deal here? Are we on the same page? Are we on the same side? Do we have each other's best interests at heart? We do this. We do it with our roommates. You do it with people you've been friends with for a long time. You do it with people you've been friends with just for a moment. Why didn't you like my Instagram post? We would never say that in their face, right? Um, There's a thing about... The co- a covenant relationship though, right? In a covenant relationship, the deal is sealed. A married couple never has to ask the question, what is the deal between us? Because we have something right here that tells us what the deal is. That even though your husband is an insecure whatever sometimes, I'm not talking, per- yeah, I am. Um, we know what the deal is, right? Our greatest stresses in all of our relationship is that thought of what is the deal. But here it is. What God is showing Adam and what he's showing us through Adam is that when it comes to our relationship with God through Christ, he has not left that question open to us. In other words, you and God are not dating. There's not like this trial period where you've got to like prove whatever. There's a, there's a reason why dating is never a metaphor in the Bible, right? Because it's terrible, but we do it. I don't know. Um, And so we wonder, why do we bring that kind of insecurity into our relationship with God? There's a reason that God uses a marriage metaphor throughout the Bible. That the relationship that He wants between us is one that is sealed and firm. 
So the relationship defined, covenant defined, covenant applied, the final thing here is the covenant illustrated. So not only does God define it and apply it, he wants to more fully bring it home to Adam's heart. And so what does he do? He gives him a flesh and blood illustration of what he's building, right? How could Adam fully know God's heart for him? It's when God gives him a helper. Now, ladies, do not be offended. Do not be in the slight bit offended by the word helper. Um, I always bring this up that there's one other thing, a person that's called helper in the Bible. God himself. In the Old Testament, it's God himself coming to Israel. Uh, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit that lives, his own spirit that lives in us, our helper. Okay, So it's a great thing. And so we get... If you read the whole account of creation, you get into chapter 2. The great refrain of creation was all these benedictions. It is good, it is good, it is good. And then all of a sudden, there is a resounding malediction. It is not good that man is alone. It's not good. And so he makes woman, and he presents her to man. And at the sight of her, I love that, at the sight of her, He sings the world's first love song. Not Etta James. At last. All right, sorry. I can't read that without making that joke. I'm sorry. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's as if Adam is saying, at last, Lord, I know. I understand what you want for me and for us. This is why I agree with Tim Keller, who wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. This is why I agree with him that he says marriage is the most profound of human relationships. This is the most profound of human relationships. This is why marriage is sacred. It's why it's instituted by God in the beginning. It's not a man-made institution. It is not something that we can do with as we please. Because God in the beginning, it stood for all time as an object lesson for all people of all time to understand what God wanted to have with his people. What kind of relationship. It's why when Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5 verse 24, he says that the mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. But I want to hone in on verse 25. With what little time we have. Because I think this is fascinating. You get two chapters on the the story of creation. And the last thing that the author of Genesis wants to tell us about existence in this world before sin is that they were both naked and unashamed. Now you cannot even begin to know what that means and you think to yourself, man, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Right? Right? Physically, existentially, however you want to think about it. They were both naked and unashamed. That the first relationship, devoid of sin and brokenness, was one of complete transparency. That they didn't feel any need to hide. They didn't feel any fear of being exposed. They just were. And it was good. And again, you cannot even know where I'm going with this. And you think, man, that'd be amazing to have relationships like that. We all feel that. And herein lies, because what I love about verse 25 is what, I think herein lies the base note of all of our hearts. The desire of all of us, whether you've thought about it or not, to be fully known and fully loved. 
That's what we want. That's what we're all looking for. We all want someone, someone, anyone, to know us as we really are. And to fully love us. Maybe despite of it. In spite of it. This is the desire that drives everything we do. It's at the heart of all the dysfunction in our relationships as well. Because we all want to be fully known and fully loved. But we know somewhere inside of us we think we know that it's not really possible. Right? Because we could choose one or the other. Maybe maybe we could, uh, you know, maybe I want to just choose the love thing. But if I really want to be fully loved, you know, I can do things to get love. I can be a certain something to get love. I can say certain things to get love. But the last thing I can do is like let you really know what's going on in me. Right? Because that means you might reject me, most likely. With all my flaws, with all my anxieties, with all my insecurities. I want your love, but I can't let you all the way in or you might not love me. Or we can choose, we just want to be known. We want to be existent. We just want it all to be out there. But the only way to really do that, right, would be to just not care what people think. Maybe you're one of those people, but... I care what people think a lot. I don't think I could do that. And so the question is here at the end of Genesis 2. What if God made you, sincerely made you, to be fully known and fully loved? What if that's what he made us for? I mentioned Hebrews 4 last week um, when we got to the, when we talked about how we're resters. Uh, the author there in Hebrews 4, he takes, he's talking about how the Israelites in the wilderness, just like Adam, they disobeyed God and so they failed to enter God's rest. And so I read this portion. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And so we think about, okay, maybe this is a good thing. Well, what kind of rest is that? Listen to the very next verses. What kind of rest is that? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And note, please get this, this is the rest that the author of Hebrews is talking about. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Who thinks that sounds restful? Like, okay, the author of Hebrews has lost it. But he continues. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And this is what Genesis 2 is also telling us. That God knows that the base note of our heart is to be fully known and to be fully loved. Because that's what he made us for. And he also knows that our sin and the sin of others as well has caused us to cover and to hide and if life is to be found in relationships, but we run in fear of real and true relationships, then what that must mean is that we can't have life and we can't truly live. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way. So what did Jesus do? He covered us so we don't have to. 
He was pierced for us so we don't have to be. He was hung on a tree and exposed for the world to see because he gave account to God for sin, for our sin. Why? Because even though he fully knows us, he fully loves us. And he wanted us to know that. And he wanted us to know his love. He wanted us to know it. He wanted us to be able to apply it. He wanted us to be able to live it. With him, but also with each other. That we aren't meant to hide from each other. We're not meant to hide from God. We were created in relationship. And he has made it whole. Let's cling to that promise tonight. Let's pray. Father, we know our desire to belong, our desire to be known, our desire to be valued. Father, we know our fear of rejection. We know the crippling pain of loneliness and sadness, of heartbreak, of trauma and victimization. It just doesn't seem possible that we could be fully loved or fully known and definitely not both. It's precisely what you've made us for and it's precisely what you've promised us in relationship with yourself. Would you help us see that? Would you you help us live into it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.